Welcome to second service. I'm excited. First service was a rehearsal for you guys, just so you know. We got all the, all the bugs worked out, and there were quite a few. Um, now there's literally bugs everywhere, and we had to get rid of them. Um, just kidding. If you have a Bible, you're going to maybe get tired of hearing me say this after a few months. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans, because that's where we're going to be starting this Sunday, um, probably all the way through Christmas, uh, until Christmas. We spent uh, the better part of nine months um, in the book of Romans uh, last year, uh, looking at chapters 1 through 11, which is the most detailed and thorough explanation of the gospel, what we mean when we say the gospel, the good news of Jesus, um, that there is in the Bible. And what's exciting is that there is such a huge natural transition between chapters 11 and chapter 12 that if you know anything about Romans, you know this is a big shift in the book. And, um, and so what we're going to do this morning is because these first two verses of chapter 12 have so much in them that we're actually going to look at one verse this morning, and then we're going to look at another verse next week, and then I promise we'll go a little bit faster than that um, and actually get through this. But uh, So if you have a Bible, you can open to Romans chapter 12. We're just looking at verse 1 today. I'll put it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Um, here's what Paul says in Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So you may have heard this verse before. It's a well-known verse in the Bible because of all that it says and what it implies and what is carried with it here. This word in the very first part of the verse, therefore, this is one of the biggest therefores in the Bible. Therefore is a word that bridges two different things. And what Paul is saying here is, I appeal to you, therefore, meaning I implore you, I practically beg of you as a result of everything we just talked about, which is all of this stuff that makes up, really makes up, this thing we call the gospel. The message of salvation by faith alone in Christ, a message that Paul has explained for religious people who are used to the rules and used to church and used to the idea of God and still fall short in pursuing those things without Jesus, and a message to the people who are far from God and far from church and don't like rules and any of that stuff and still find themselves suffering there. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, uh, the hope of Jesus and his sacrifice means that we can have new life, and there's something about that that changes everything for us. And so Paul says to us simply, because of all that, therefore, and he begins to tell us what it looks like to live this out. I was thinking this morning about the things that we hear and understand, and they're so big that they change our lives, whether we want them to or not. When you think of things, maybe news or information that has done that for you, usually it falls in two categories. Some of the best news you've ever heard and the worst news that you've ever heard. The best news usually having to do with something exciting that you know, regardless of what you do with it, will change your life for the better. And the hardest news that you've received, that you know no matter what you do, feels like it will change your life for the worst. 
You know, it's interesting to talk about this on 9-11, because I remember when I was uh, in college and my mom called me and woke me up and said, you need to turn the TV on and see what happened, um, that at my age of like 20, that was the first time that I can remember experiencing something that everyone else around me was experiencing at the same time. I hadn't lived through any major wars that I was aware of or anything like that. And so I remember that whole day, everybody I saw, everybody I interacted with, every car next to me on the freeways I was driving, I knew we're all going through the same thing. And I could tell when I turned the news on and what was happening, when the second plane hit especially, like, this is bad and it's going to change my life for the worse. There is news that is so big that we cannot help but live differently as a result of it. And this is where we find ourselves in Romans 12, where Paul says to the church in Rome, a church that he loves, that he holds in high regard. They haven't heard the good news of the gospel for the very first time just now. But there's something about it that changes our life so much that he still has to remind them and show them exactly what that looks like. This morning, in this one verse, what we begin to talk about that is so important is what we mean when we say living the Christian life. Because the idea is this, that you encounter the gospel and receive it and believe and are changed by it and given new life. And the result of that is you now move forward living what we call the Christian life. That your life will somehow be different than it would have been before, and it will definitely be different than anyone else who isn't living in the hope in Jesus. But when we talk about what does it mean to live the Christian life, what does it mean to do that? A lot of people have a lot of different ideas of what that is and what that looks like and how that looks. And so what Paul does in these first two verses, and we'll look at this week and next week, is exactly what we mean when we talk about living the Christian life. And we're going to look at three aspects of it this morning. We're going to look at why we do it, like why we actually live differently, how we do it, and then what it actually looks like in a person's life when they're doing it. Paul says here the answer to our first question of why do we do it. When he says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We ask this question, why does a person live a different way who calls themselves a Christian? And the answer is right there. God's mercy. You know, I like the NIV translation of this, and I think it's probably what most people I talk to are most familiar with. It says, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, because of what we see in the mercy of God, we will live differently. God's mercy is our motivator. This concept of the mercy of God is one that we read about throughout the Bible. Uh, we read about God as the father of mercies. We read about God in Ephesians. Paul writes that he is rich in mercy. You see, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul also lays out kind of the very short version of the gospel in terms of like how fallen we are and what that looks like in people's lives. And then he goes on in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Ephesians to say this, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. The, that's the shortest version right there. What we mean when we talk about the good news of Jesus. 
a lot of people will often say, boy, that, those two words, but God, a lot hinges on those two words. Because had God not intervened, had God not done something so that we could experience his mercy in the midst of our sin, everything would be different for us and we would have no hope. You see, what Paul says here is that God is rich in mercy. And do you know that God is only described as being rich in one thing? And it's this in the Bible. Of all the things that God is rich in, we hear that God is rich in mercy, which isn't often how we think of God. We think of God as being uh, abundant and wealthy in judgment and in punishment and in wrath. In fact, it's easy for us to think of God as more naturally being like a punishing God. And that the mercy side of him is this other thing that he has to do sometimes, but he really doesn't like it, and he really doesn't want to have to, and he kind of resents the fact that he needs to even worry about mercy. Paul tells us something different. He describes God as being rich in mercy, not becoming rich in mercy, but being a God who has such great mercy that he is wealthy because of it. Why we do it, why we live this thing called the Christian life is first and foremost because of the richness of God's mercy. It is because of what he gives to us and has done in our lives and for us that we can only naturally respond by living a totally different life than we would have otherwise before. For all of the ways that we fall short, God's mercy is there. He is abundant in mercy. And when Scripture tells us that he is a father of mercy, what it is saying is not that all of his children experience it. What it's actually saying there is that in the same way that a father produces children, that's kind of like how the Bible sees, you know, especially in this culture, the idea of a father, the head of household, is they multiply. They make more people. And so what he's saying in the language of even the father of mercy that we read in scripture is that God multiplies his mercies to meet each and every one of our needs. Each and every one of the ways that we fall short, he abounds in mercies for us. And not only does he meet us where we're at, in each and every instance in which we require his mercy to live, but he actually shows us what that looks like too. Because when you talk about this concept, it's it's a little bit abstract. It's like, okay, so I should just kind of be grateful for knowing that God's up there feeling good things towards me, thinking good things about me. What would that even look like really in my life? And the good news about it is that the Bible tells us that when God actually chose to manifest himself physically for us in Jesus, What he did was show us exactly what it would look like for him to abound in mercy toward each and every one of us in all of our varied states that we find ourselves in. When you read through the Gospels and you look at the ministry and the life of Jesus, what do we see more than anything else? Do we see a great Bible teacher who had such good teaching that people came back week after week after week because he just had a way of talking about Scripture that they could not stop listening to and couldn't get enough of? No. Do we see someone who's such an amazing leader that he's able to get people to do things that they otherwise would never have done to such a degree that like people had no choice but to follow him, it seemed? 
He should be writing books on this stuff. He should be teaching seminars on this stuff. We should be learning the Jesus way of leadership. No. He healed and helped so many people. Was he one who came and like made our situation better right here, right now, and then showed us how we can experience paradise on earth? There's a lot of like religious leaders who do that. They, they come into a person's life when it's a mess. They say, here, we'll fix your problems right now. And then if you join my group of people in our very specific way of living, we'll create heaven on earth. We'll experience it here and now. That wasn't exactly what it was like to follow Jesus and be one of his people. Was Jesus the warrior, like Messiah that the Jewish people were hoping he would be? The guy that would finally come and save them from the Romans who were oppressing them? No. What we see in the life of Jesus, what we see when God actually walked among us in flesh again and again and again, is someone who was generous to those he came across with mercy. Like when you look at the life of Jesus, you see every different kind of person and he brings them God's mercy right where they're at, in their situation, in their way, with the exact thing that they're struggling with, that they're dealing with. He had mercy on the poor person he came across whose life was such a mess and so screwed up because they made all the worst choices and all the wrong choices and were left to deal with the result of those things. The wreckage they created for themselves, Jesus met that person and he met them with God's mercy and with hope. The woman who um, had been with so many men and had so many husbands that she had to go draw water at a well in the time when no other people would, Jesus met that woman where she was at, like literally met her where she was at. He talked to her and treated her with dignity and showed her God's mercy, even though she was someone that his people wouldn't talk to and wouldn't touch. He had mercy on the person who was sick or who suffered due to nothing that they had done. They experienced pain and suffering, even though it wasn't like they did anything to deserve it. He brought mercy and healing and hope to them. He had mercy on tax collectors who uh, basically exploited their own people just to have a little bit of extra money, and as a result, really had no people that, were, that they could call their own. He showed them mercy and compassion, made one of them his disciple. He had mercy on uh, the disciples who said they believed in him and trusted in him and followed him, and yet often didn't do the best job of doing that. He had mercy on the disciples who abandoned him in the moment when he needed them most, it seemed. When he was resurrected, he returned to them, and he loved them. Can you even imagine what it would have been like to be a disciple and to abandon Jesus and to never get to see him? again, for, for him to maybe uh, resurrect and not come to you, but go find another group of people that might be a little bit more deserving of getting to see the risen Lord. And even then, uh, I'm not sure that I buy this, Jesus. How physical can we get here? He had mercy on them. He had mercy on the crowds of people who would come and who would ask him to heal them and who would eat his food when he provided it for them. And then would leave and go on to the next person who had something interesting to say and promised to bring something new to their life. He had mercy on the people who condemned him to death. Jesus had mercy on the very soldiers who killed him. 
as he said from the cross, Father, would you forgive these people? They don't know what they're even doing right now. What we see in the life of Christ is what it looks like for God to meet us where we are and to meet us with his mercy and to not give it to us uh, in a sort of a resentful or resigned or sort of slow or gradual way, but to meet us where we are and to give it to us abundantly. Why? Because it gives him joy to meet us there and to show us his love. And what we see in the ministry of Jesus that we cannot miss is that he didn't actually come just to mend wounded people. He didn't come to wake up a sleepy group of people. He didn't come to advise confused people. He didn't come to inspire bored people or to spur on lazy people or to educate ignorant people. Jesus came to raise dead people. And that is why his mercy means so much to us. He's not some self-help program. He's not a way to get through what we're going through right now. He's not that kick that we need after the pandemic and we just got to get our life back on track. He is who brings us life. That's how much his love and mercy means for us. So why do we choose to live the Christian life? Because of the mercy the richness of the mercy that God has shown us. This is our motivation. This is the thing that drives us. And yet most people that I encounter, that you might encounter, who would claim to be seeking to live a Christian life are probably not living it out of this motivation. Are probably living it out of fear. Fear of what God will do if we don't. Fear of what our life will look like if we don't get it cleaned up. Fear of what other people will think of us or fear of where things are going to go if things don't change. Fear of what will happen if we don't follow the rules as well as we have before. The need to prove ourselves through the things that we do. So often, we choose to live this thing called the Christian life differently in the name of Jesus, not because of what he's done for us and our awareness of that, but because of the things we're afraid will happen if we don't. And I can tell you, church, I can promise you that that motivation will not carry you through. That it may work for a while. It may work really well for a short time, but it will not carry you through for the long haul. Because eventually you will get up, give up. Eventually you will grow discouraged. Eventually you will feel overwhelmed and condemned by your inability to live this thing called the Christian life on your own. And the good news is when you do, guess what? God meets you there with his mercy, new every morning, abounding in it. We will not be able to do the right things, to live the right way, to be truly good if we are doing it for any reason other than God loves me and has forgiven me. This is why, and the why is important, and the truth is, Many people miss this and instead just try doing more things and living better and being different without actually really understanding and reflecting on why they would in the first place. The question then is how do we do this thing? How does a person go about living differently because of what the gospel has done in their life? 
Paul's answer to it is a single word, kind of two words. He says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's simple, pretty easy. Just sacrifice yourself completely. So everybody go do that, all right? Just kind of dip your toe in that water and see how, it, see how it feels, see how it works for a little bit, and then we'll come back and talk about it. The way that we live differently is by giving over all of who we are because of the richness of God's mercy. He's enabled us to let go of things that we could never let go of otherwise. To allow him to be in charge of, to speak into, and to even dictate things that we would never be able to allow him to or anyone else to because of his richness of his mercy. The concept of sacrifice is huge throughout history. All people groups experience it, it seems, in some way, especially far back in history. For thousands and thousands of years, every group of people experiences this idea of sacrifice and engages in it in some way. Thousands of years ago, people uh, like in the Chinese cultures or in the Egyptian culture sacrificed people, animals, things. And the purpose for that was often to actually prepare the way for the life to come. Their view of the afterlife was that it's probably going to be pretty boring without some stuff to keep me busy. And so I'll go ahead and sacrifice some people, some slaves. Uh, they can take care of me in the afterlife. I'll, I'll put a bunch of valuable stuff uh, in my tomb. That's what we find in the pyramids. Put some animals in there because pets are important, right? Egypt, they're really into cats. A lot of cats, right? So that fact is great if you're a cat lover or if you're a cat hater, you see? Because if you love cats, you understand why. If you don't, you're like, well, great then. They sacrificed all these cats. I guarantee you if this were like a real thing, like my kids would each have a list of things that they'd be like, yep, can I bring it with me, right? One would be pointing to like Pokemon Binder. The other one would be pointing to the dog and it would be like the dog would run away, right? If you were a slave back then, you maybe want to get out of town when it looks like the ruler or the general is uh, starting to get sick and be under the weather, right? In fact, um, the terracotta soldiers, you may have heard of these. They find them in China. These were a big deal because it was a turning point in the way that people prepared for the afterlife because these generals and leaders figured, uh, they didn't figure out, they just decided that they would make these soldiers, uh, all the slaves are like, thank you. The other real soldiers are like, this is a good, I'm sure they had support by them. I'm sure they, they took a vote with the armies and they're like, okay guys, there's two ways we could go with this. You could all sacrifice yourselves and I have an army in the afterlife or we could just make these really nice statues. And they were like, we'll all make one, you know. They all look different. Clearly different people made them. They all just made one that looked like themselves. I, go, I say we go this way, right? And the idea of the terracotta soldiers is that these like hundreds of thousands of soldiers that were found underground in China many years ago were there uh, as a sacrifice in the place of the people that they would sacrifice so that these leaders, when they got to heaven, would actually have something there for them. We find in cultures like, like the Mayans and the Aztecs and many other people who would sacrifice not because they were preparing for something, but because the gods themselves that they worshipped, they believed were hungry for it. They believed that they fed on and grew strength from the blood of sacrifices from people and animals. And so we give them strength, and then they take care of us. They give us rain for our crops. They give us, uh, they give us wombs that have children in them. They give us peace 
uh, and, and success over our enemies and over the people that we battle against. See, for thousands and thousands of years, people have been sacrificing to so many different kinds of gods. And each and every time, the point of it was because we wanted something that we couldn't otherwise get. Or because God needed something that he otherwise couldn't get. The God that the people worshipped needed something from them to be complete. Or the people needed something. And if we did this thing, then maybe we'll get it. What you see with the Israelites in the Old Testament is different. You see sacrifices that have to do with sin as a way of showing God the seriousness that we recognize our sin was in repentance. But the majority of sacrifices you see are called burnt offerings, which is what, uh, burnt offering sacrifices, which is what Paul's talking about here. Because Paul wouldn't tell the church to sacrifice themselves um, for their salvation, for their standing with God, because Jesus has already been sacrificed. We don't need to make any sacrifice for that. We don't need to do something to earn that. That's not what he means. What he means is this thing that the Israelites engaged in called the burnt sacrificial offering. And the idea was that this was a thing that happened during holy days, during festivals and things as a way of just worshiping God, showing our gratefulness to God and his faithfulness to us. In other words, the sacrifice of God's people was the result of what he had done. It was not because he needed something from us to be complete. Now, at the time that Paul writes this to the church in Rome in the first century, um, there were sacrifices going on in Roman culture. They had a lot of gods. They sacrificed a lot of animals and a lot of things to those gods. And the idea was, it usually happened during celebration, that it gave you some kind of blessing from that god. You would get something good if you, if you gave some kind of valuable sacrifice to the God of your choice. And, and by doing that, you would receive a specific thing, whether it's a fertility God or a rain God or a sun God or, or things like that. God of love, the God of war. What's really crazy is that Christians in the first century were considered a cult of atheists. And they were considered a cult of atheists because they didn't have a temple to worship at because they hadn't appointed a priest in all these fancy robes who would lead them, and because they didn't offer sacrifices to the gods. Because they didn't engage in the same activities that other people did with their gods, the people looked at them and said, well, then they must not believe in gods. They must not have gods. And so Paul's message to this group of people who were known for not sacrificing, who were known for not doing any of those things that people used to do and have done for so long, was that we do offer sacrifice. We do respond to God with a sacrifice, but it is not just our favorite sheep or lamb. It isn't a pet. It isn't the valuable things that we have, and it isn't people who are not us. The sacrifice that we give to him is ourselves. Paul raises the bar significantly on how followers of Jesus respond to the gospel. How we do it is we give everything. Because he's delivered us from death, from condemnation, because we no longer are slaves to sin, and because God is for us. We celebrate that. We respond to that the only way that makes sense, which is to give all of ourselves over to him and to trust what he will do with that. To be a living sacrifice is to give every part of our life over to God. This is how we live the Christian life. This is what a person seeks to do, is to give every part of our life over to God. That sounds easy. Just go and do it, guys. 
Not that hard. When in doubt, give it over to God. It's that easy. And if you want to be more specific, actively, we obey God in anything he says. And kind of what seems like a more passive one is that we thank God for everything he sends. We develop a posture in our lives where we recognize that God's will is greater than ours, and we recognize that we won't be, we won't even view the things that happen to us the same as people who don't have a hope in Jesus. We will obey what he says, and we will, we will work to be thankful for the things that he does. We give God power over every single part of our lives. We hold nothing back. And why does it have to be everything? Why does it have to be all? You see, when you gave a burnt offering, when you gave that sacrifice, it's one thing to just kill your most valuable animal and go, there you go, God, I killed my most valuable animal. Now, if only I could find something to do with this. Oh, I'm sure I could find something to do with this. No, God said you have to burn it. But he doesn't say just cook it perfectly because then you'd be like, well, I think I can definitely think of something to do with this. He says, Allow it to be consumed by fire. You are to not benefit from this thing that you're giving over to me. So often the way that we view sacrifice of our lives is to give over things to God, expecting that he will make them better. And then it's like the best investment we ever made. We end up enjoying that thing so much more when in reality, we simply give it over to give it over. The reason that we do it in totality, the reason that he says uh, it, it's to be really, truly a sacrifice of ourselves is because we are prone to hold back the things that need to be given to him the most. We're selective by nature, right? Like, oh God, I can give you this, I can give you this, I can give you this, and I can't believe those people can't but just let me have this and let me hang on to this and let me keep this, right? He's, that's not the language of a burnt offering. That's not the language of a sacrifice in the way that Paul talks about it. We are to give over everything. And imagine being, having a diagnosis for something like cancer and going into the doctor and getting a scan of your body to tell you where it is and if it is there. Maybe you've been in treatment and you're going to see if it remains. Now imagine you go in and they say, well, the scanner's broken. It only works on half your body. Anyway, hopefully we have good news for you. That wouldn't be sufficient. That wouldn't be enough. Part of the way is not the same. I'm the kind of person that if the scanner did everything but like a finger, I'd be like looking up finger scanners to find that last bit of assurance. It's like um, marrying a person and putting your ceremony together and looking at this list of vows and going, would it be cool if each of us just pick like five of these and that we just say like, let's do those five? I mean, this is a big list. These are a lot of things. Let's just be faithful in these ones, okay? We'll probably still do better than most people. It doesn't really work that way. Part way doesn't really get you there. And what we see, again, in the way Jesus is with people, the way that we see people interact with Jesus when this very thing happens is he is often asking them about those things that they've held back, which is why they really get uncomfortable sometimes with Jesus. People will come to him and they'll be very proud of the things that they have given over, the things that we are doing well in living the Christian life. And Jesus will simply say, have you thought about this? 
The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, I have followed all the rules. I'm so good at following rules. People know me. They look at me. They say, that guy, he is a good rule follower. And Jesus is like, could you just give your money up then? And he's like, hold on a second. God gave me this money because he wanted me to have the money, okay? My friends and I all decided that, okay? In fact, they feel the same way. They're rich too, okay? God doesn't touch the money. He wants the rules. That's fine. Jesus says to him, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, couldn't get any clearer than this, than for a rich person to enter heaven. Why does he say that? Because of how hard it is for that person to give over something like that in their lives. I'll just hold this one thing back. I'm doing pretty good. Definitely better than those people. Definitely better than that person. When Mary and Martha, um, Jesus comes to their home, these sisters and one of them spends the whole time at his feet and just being with him, just spending time with him, just wanting to be in the presence of Jesus. The other one is busy doing all these different things. And she comes up and she's like, Jesus, she's not doing anything. I'm doing everything. And Jesus asks her, you know, he says, he says, can you do this? And we look at that and we say, God, I will do any chore, any task, any activity, any physical thing that you need. I will do it. You ask anybody, they'll tell you, I'm good at doing all the stuff for you. And he says, then can you give over being with me? Can you also be in my presence and let me be enough? Then watch what it does to the things that you do and how it changes your ability to do those things with the right heart. The young lawyer comes to Jesus, the Pharisee, and he says, you know, how do, I, how do I be righteous? What do I do? And Jesus says to love his neighbor, and he says, well, who's my neighbor? And then it gets really tricky because Jesus tells him who his neighbor is, and he's like, come on, Jesus. And man, there, there are some of us, there are many of us, I mean, I think if we're honest, it's really all of us. We, we actually, especially in living the Christian life, the way that we would characterize what that looks like is to love the people that we love the best. Oh, man, you ask, they, that person, love, man, you want to talk about, you want to talk about, like, I will bring them a casserole, no question, right? I will show up at their doorstep when they need it. I will be there at the other end of the phone. I will do whatever I can for those people who have made the biggest impact in my life, who mean the most to me, who I think are the most valuable and the best. And then what Jesus says to this person is he says the parable, the prodigal, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This person who chose to love the person who was most difficult to love, that would make them seem impure to others around them. That would cause them to be inconvenienced and they would get nothing out of it personally like they get out of it when they help their friends. I mean, man, you think about that. Saying, I, I can do these things, but I'm just going to hold back who I do them for and what it looks like when I do these things. This is how we do it. But the next question, and I think it's really important because this is also an area where, especially as a person seeks to live the Christian life into adulthood, I think we really miss the importance of. And it's something that we often gain earlier in life and we kind of lose sight of. And it's this question, what does it actually look like for a person to do this? And you might be like, well, it's probably pretty obvious what it looks like, right? I mean, it's not that complicated. Jesus says to us, or Paul says to us, in answering what it looks like, what it actually looks like for a person to do this, he says that we are to present our bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, if you want to do this truly spiritual thing, it's going to be physical in how it plays out in your life. But you want to really, like, upset people in a Greek and Roman culture at that time. You act like God cares about how they live their lives. You act like God cares about the decisions and the choices they make. I mean, come on. If your God is so big, if he is so transcendent to these things we get caught up in and that we care about and that we find ourselves doing with our time, if he really is a spiritual God, then he's going to change you in here and he's going to teach you things up here and he doesn't care what you're doing all the time. He doesn't care about the words you use and the people you're in relationships with and the, the way you actually physically act. In fact, the Greeks believed the body was just something gods weren't interested in at all. All that mattered was the discussions we have all the time about spiritual things, the philosophy that we talk about, and the new things that we're learning. You see, Paul understood the connection between what happens inside of us spiritually and the actions that follow. In fact, he understands it so well that earlier in Romans, when he talks about sin and people, he characterizes it this way. Oh, well, this is what it looks like. Our behavior is totally different. One of these days, I'm going to figure out this slide thing. Our actual behavior is different. Paul says this earlier in Romans when he's making the case for the gospel and what sin looks like in the lives of people. He says, all have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he specifies. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. What Paul says here is the sin that exists within people, the spiritual state of a person, is evident by the physical things they do. We actually make choices that are harmful to ourselves and others. We use words and we have attitudes that are manifested. This is why your sin hurts me. My sin can hurt you. Why my sin hurts my community. Why my sin can hurt my children and my spouse and the people that are interacting and living lives next to me. Because it isn't just stay in here. It's acted out. But the good news, Paul says, is that it doesn't stay that way. God doesn't say, now that you're transformed by the gospel and you've been given a new heart, then just what you do doesn't even matter anymore. No, he goes on and he says this when he talks about how we live moving forward. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. There's another therefore. Because of the gospel, because we've been forgiven, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You see, under the law, any time you tried to behave, you were just reminded that you couldn't behave well enough. But because we're not under the law, and because when we fall short, God meets us there, with his mercy, 
we can use the very physical things in our lives, the members of our body, we can actually do good with those things and live what we call the Christian life. That the way that we live is seen as different by others. It's felt as different by those around us and we see it playing out differently physically in the things that happen as a result. Sin doesn't just stay on a spiritual level. It's physical. It's behavior. It happens that way. Now, there's nothing worse that you can do than to try to go, okay, fine, then I'll just change my behavior and my spiritual state will follow. That's not how it works. There's plenty of people trying to live good lives, do good things, um, without some change happening within us and without our hope being in Jesus itself. And all that's going to do is what the law does. And we will, as Paul tells us, through his own story. Paul tells us with his own story. When he talks about sin, he says how there are people who give in to sin by just venting their desires without any regard for God or order or peace or right or wrong. They just do whatever feels good and say none of it matters. And those people in their disobedience are dead. But what he also says about his own experience, Paul the most righteous of Pharisees and Jews, the person who followed all the rules better than anybody else, who had the greatest reputation for doing the right thing, for behaving the right way. He says, my former way of life was foolishness, and it was also sin. Why? Because while in their disobedience they were dead, in my obedience I was dead. And so the good news is that when we experience the kind of transformation that comes from the very mercy of God, being present in our lives. We change. We live differently. I say this with this emphasis because I think there's this tendency many of us have to think that once we get beyond a certain age, we don't actually have to open up the Bible and do what it says anymore. We go, that was for when I was a kid. That was for when I was in youth group. That was for when I needed some extra structure and some rules to keep me from going off the rails. But now that I've grown up and I've become mature and I've figured out enough things in the world, it's fine. When I read something in the Word, if I don't like it, I just go, well, that's not what it means. Or when it tells me to live a certain way or do a certain thing and I don't like that, I go, well, that probably doesn't apply to me. It's for them. And we lose sight of the fact that actually we are to continue to obey the word of God and what he tells us, not because it's what saves us, but because his mercy has enabled us to do it. That's the crazy and amazing thing about the mercy of God. Can you tell what I really want to talk about all morning? Can you tell what I've really been thinking about all week? I'll tell you, for so much of my life, uh, even uh, really as a pastor, I just wanted people to sacrifice more and more and more and more for God. And I think what I find now is that I want people to recognize the mercy of God more and more. Because I've known so many, and I've experienced myself, what it looks like to think that the answer is to just keep giving more up for him without having experienced his mercy and recognizing that it meets us each day anew in multiplied ways where we're at. I do believe that what Paul and Jesus show us in Scripture, what God himself shows us, is that his mercy is so powerful and it abounds so much that it will change us. And we will be different people. It enables us to do this. This is not only the explanation of what we're supposed to do, 
But it's the good news of how it gets done in our life. It is God's power and his strength that does it. I want to ask you a couple things as we kind of close this this morning. And they're probably, hopefully there are things that have maybe occurred to you already, but if not, I just want to ask you these three things. The first is this. Are you trying to live the Christian life out of something other than an appreciation and a gratefulness for the mercy of God? Are you doing it out of fear? Are you doing it because of what you're trying to prove? Are you doing it because you really need your life to look different and everything's riding on that? If you don't feel completely blown away by the mercy of God and how much he richly wants to give it to you and how much of his nature is him doing that for you, wherever you're at today, he wants that. He wants you to see that and to receive that from him. The second one is, are you really in this all the way? Or have you done what so many of us do and very carefully and selectively and very effectively given over some of your life and held back certain other things? You know, the analogy we often use is you're like that person cleaning their house for company coming over and what do you do, right? Shove it all in one room and you shut the door and you go, don't go in there, right? Don't go look in the other side of the bridge room because what you'll see is that we had to shove a bunch of stuff over there. Like, that's where the baptismal is, right? It's going to be a hot tub down the road. It's phase two. Or are you offering up to God those parts of your life that seem easiest to give to him, that seem to cost you the least? The last thing is if... um, Is yours a faith that is merely internal for you? That you'll spend all day learning and hearing, sermon after sermon, podcasts and Bible studies. You'll discuss with your friends over coffee constantly about these things that have to do with, you know, how we feel and maybe what we believe and maybe what we think, but that you don't actually expect it to be manifested in the way that you live your life. That it's not enough to just um, feel differently about the disagreement you have with another. It's to go to that person and forgive or to go to that person and ask for forgiveness. That we're good at doing what's internal and we think we've grown beyond the point where God actually still cares about the way we live and the choices we make. There's this movie that I saw years ago, and I really love it, but it's really weird. And um, I asked the first, um, oh, there's a picture of it. I asked the first uh, service, who has seen this movie, just to show you how obscure it is. Who's seen a movie called The Darjeeling Limited? One person, there we go. All right, Scott. Oh, yeah, Scott's in both services. Okay, good. That's awesome. Okay. And then Ellie never raises her hand because she's ashamed, I guess, that she saw it with me. It's made by this guy, Wes Anderson, and it's this great movie about these three adult sons who have a very dysfunctional relationship. They come from a very dysfunctional family, and their dad has just died, and they have to, they meet up to travel on a train called the Darjeeling Limited across India. All sorts of crazy stuff happens to go find their mother who's living in a convent, and they have to basically see her and find her and figure out what to do about their dad's estate and about his remains and everything. They even, don't even know really what happened with him. And the whole movie is about all these things they go through. But what's incredible to me about it is at the beginning of the movie, one of the sons brings with him their dad's luggage. 
his, his favorite luggage, and it's full of all the guy's stuff. And so they spend the entire trip, they spend the entire saga lugging around all of this stuff that reminds them of their dad, and they think they desperately need. And yet what they find, believe it or not, is the further they go and the harder things get, the more they have to get rid of this stuff. And so the best part of the movie is what happens towards the end in slow motion is they're trying to catch a train and they're forced to just throw away all this stuff. And you realize watching it that because we're so dense, it takes it being this obvious for us to see that we carry around all this stuff and it is not until we let it go that we can truly be free. I think much of the time that we think about the sacrifice that it means to live the Christian life, we're not thinking about the stuff that we struggle to let go of that's actually weighing us down so much. The baggage that we carry with us, the history, the experiences, the struggles, the shame, all that stuff, we will carry that stuff around because we think we need to and we think that it somehow helps us be motivated more or we don't deserve to be free from it. And much of the time, it isn't about being more diligent in your quiet times or learning how to give up the next thing that's better for your physical body, but it's actually about letting go of the baggage and the stuff that we're so eager to hang on to because we're afraid of what will be left. The good news of the gospel is that as we let it all go to God, that what he does with that is meet us with his mercy still. And what he does is shape us and change our lives in such a way that we never could have imagined. Let's pray.